0: I still remember as a college student sitting in a lecture hall at Keeble College in Oxford, England on an overseas study trip. The lecture was talking about medieval European views of the universe during the Renaissance period, the 1400s and 1500s. He made a statement that took me aback. He said that people during the medieval period believed that the earth was spherical and that the sun and planets revolved around it, just as pictured in this medieval model of the universe. You can see a spherical Earth and circular orbit patterns of the planets around. That was confusing to me. I had often been taught, since I was young, that people in Europe during the Middle Ages believed the world was flat and that it was not until the voyages of Columbus that the earth was shown to be round. When the lecturer paused for questions at the end of the presentation, I raised my hand and timidly asked, but didn't medieval Europeans believe the world was flat? The lecturer was kind, but he politely informed me that the idea that medieval Europeans believed the world was flat is a historical myth. Ever since that embarrassing moment, I've been interested in the myth of medieval European belief in a flat earth, which Jeffrey Burton Russell has referred to as the flat error. I wanted to know where it came from and why it has proved so persistent. And that is the subject I would like to explore with you today. We'll begin by looking at some examples of the medieval flat earth error being taught. Second, we'll examine the history of medieval, ancient and medieval belief about the shape of the earth. Third, we'll consider why Christopher Columbus's voyages were actually controversial in the 1400s. And finally, we'll discuss the seeds of the flat earth era and why it developed in the 19th and 20th centuries. In this presentation, I'll be relying on a number of sources and articles, but the most important is Geoffrey Burton Russell's definitive work on this subject, Inventing the Flat Earth, Columbus and the Modern Historians, written in 1991. Let's first take a look at some examples of the flat earth error being taught, several of which are cited by Russell. This error includes two main elements, the idea that medieval Europeans believed the world was flat, and the related idea that Columbus proved it to be round. As recently as 40 years ago, the flat earth error was commonly taught in textbooks. For example, a text from 1982 emphasizing flat earth belief reads as follows. The European sailor of a thousand years ago had many other strange beliefs. He turned to these beliefs because he had no other way to explain the dangers of the unknown sea. He believed that a ship could sail out to sea just so far before it fell off the edge of the sea. The people of Europe a thousand years ago knew little about the world. Here we have an imaginative description of of a ship on the edge of the the, uh, flat earth. The flat-earth era was not confined to textbooks, however. It also came from expert scientists. In 1990, John Hutra, of the Harvard-Smithsonian Institute for Astrophysics, was quoted as saying, Back then, when the new world was discovered, there was a lot of theoretical yet incorrect knowledge about what the world was like. Some thought the world might be flat and you could fall off the edge, but the explorers went out and found what was truly there. While many books had begun to correct the flat-earth error by the 1980s, it could still be found in the works of established historians. Daniel Borston, a former Librarian of Congress, wrote in his 1983 book entitled The Discoverers that between 300 and 1300 AD, the Church of the Middle Ages had suppressed knowledge of the round earth, although it had been taught by ancient geographers. Although less common today, it's still possible to find recent examples of the flat earth error. In 2007, Thomas Friedman, a columnist for the New York Times and author of The World is Flat, A Brief History of the 21st Century, suggested that a major significance of the voyages of Columbus was the confirmation they provided that the world was round, thus assuming medieval Europeans still believed in a flat earth. Finally, Tim O'Neill me—Tim O'Neill has highlighted that as recently as 2016, the renowned astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson suggested in a tweet that uninterrupted knowledge of the spherical Earth went back only 500 years, that is, to the time of Columbus, and that ancient Greek knowledge of the sphericity of the Earth had been lost in the so-called European Dark Ages. Today, the flat earth era has been mostly eliminated from written works, but it lives on in the popular imagination, where it is still often used to explain the significance of the voyages of Columbus. The students I regularly teach in Introduction to U.S. History are often surprised to hear that medieval Europeans did not believe in a flat earth, much as I was in Oxford those many years ago. Having discussed some examples of the flat Earth error, I'd like to briefly explore in the second part of this presentation the evidence uh, that we have surrounding the history of human belief regarding the Earth's shape. The first thing I'd like to note is that ancient cultures, prior to 500 BC, tended to portray the Earth as flat. To illustrate this, I'd like to give you examples of three ancient cosmologies that is, beliefs about the structure of the universe. The first of these cosmologies comes from the ancient Hebrews and is the dominant view of the universe referenced in the Old Testament. According to this worldview, the earth as we know it is flat. It is set on foundational pillars, you can see the pillars right here, and it is surrounded by the sea. Above the earth stands the hard surface of the firmament, It's a little bit small on this projection, but this is the firmament right here, uh, which operates as a barrier. The sun, moon, and stars are attached to the firmament, and beyond the firmament are reserves of water, which come through the windows in the firmament in the form of rain. In this cosmology, heaven, the realm of God, is located above the firmament, Meanwhile, Sheol, the underworld, is located beneath the earth and can only be reached through death. The second cosmology I'd like to look at briefly belongs to the ancient Egyptians. One of the striking things about Egyptian cosmology is the way that each part of the universe was associated with a particular deity. According to the Egyptians, the earth was a flat piece of land, personified by the god Geb. Created right here. Over the earth arched the sky, personified by the goddess Nut. And between the two, holding up Nut, was Shu, the god of the air. During the day, the sun god Ra passed through the body of the sky goddess Nut, moving from east to west, east to west across the sky. During the night, the sun would pass through the region of Duat, the underworld, and return back to the east. The Egyptians believed that A'aru, the heavenly paradise, was located in the east, where the sun rises. Meanwhile, Duat, the underworld, was the place where souls went after death to be judged and was ruled by Osiris. Lastly, let's take a brief look at ancient Chinese conceptions of the universe. I say conceptions because the Chinese actually had two different models of the universe that dominated until the arrival of Europeans in the 1500s. The Gai Tian model, an earlier model, a picture here on the left, and the Hun Tian model, a later one, pictured on the right. In both of these models, the earth was regarded as flat. In the older Gaetian model, it was pictured as a square, while in the Hün Tian model, it was pictured as round. In both models, the heavens themselves were rounded. Meanwhile, the heavenly bodies were pictured as floating unattached in the heavens and moving freely. While these models portrayed portions of the universe that were observable, the Chinese also believed there was an infinite cosmos that existed beyond the heavens and the earth. Now, I certainly don't expect you to retain all the details of these ancient cosmologies, but you do notice one thing I'm sure that they all have in common, representation of the earth as flat. A second point I'd like to make is that it was the ancient Greeks who first proposed that the earth was, in fact, a sphere. Like other ancient civilizations, the earliest Greeks at first believed in a flat earth. Homer and Hesiod, from the 8th century BC, for example, argued that the Earth was disc-shaped. It was probably Pythagoras, working around 500 BCE, who first proposed that the world was round. He reasoned that if the moon was round, something which could be clearly observed, the Earth must be too. Between 500 and 430 BC, Anaxagoras further confirmed the roundness of the Earth by observing lunar eclipses. He reasoned that if the shadow cast over the face of the moon during an eclipse was round, this must show that the earth which casts the shadow is spherical in shape. Aristotle, who lived from 384 to 322 BC, further confirmed that the earth was a sphere, by referring to the stars. He argued that the fact that different constellations appear in the night sky, depending how far north or south of the equator the viewer is, can only be explained by the fact that the Earth is a sphere. Finally, the Greek thinker Eratosthenes, living from 276 BC to 194 BC, not only posited around Earth, but actually calculated the Earth's circumference. He was able to do this by measuring the difference in the Sun's angle at the same time on two parts of the globe, and then uh, using trigonometric calculations managed to come up with a final figure for the circumference of the Earth. Using this method uh, Eratosthenes arrived at a figure of the equivalent of 40,000 kilometers for the circumference of the Earth, which is very close to the uh, 40,030 kilometers confirmed by modern scientists. So far we've seen that ancient cosmologies pictured the world as flat, and that the Greeks were the first to propose a spherical Earth. The third point I'd like to make is that during the European Middle Ages, 500 to 1500 AD, nearly every major Western thinker followed the later Greeks in accepting the sphericity of the Earth. As a group, medieval thinkers believed that the Earth was a sphere and existed at the center of the cosmos. They believed that the other planets and the sun were likewise spheres, uh, spheres Excuse me, and moved around the earth in circles. On the surface of the earth, they believed that the known world, and to them the known world was Europe, Africa, and Asia, they believed that that covered about one quarter of the globe. Medieval thinkers believed that most of the rest of the globe was covered by water and they disagreed about whether there might be an undiscovered continent or continents on the other side of the globe. Let me mention the writings of just a few individuals who shared this overall medieval consensus. John of Sacrobasco, who lived from 1195 to 1256, in his popular treatise on the sphere, argued for the roundness of the globe based on the fact that the hull of a departing ship disappears before its sail an argument that had been used by earlier writers. Roger Bacon, who lived uh, from 1219 to 1292 CE, affirmed the sphericity of the earth and suggested that the earth's curvature helps to explain why we can see further from a higher elevation. He also used the classical argument that the sphere is the most perfect shape and therefore the most appropriate shape for the earth. Nicole Orain, who lived from 1320 to 1382, accepted the sphericity of the globe and even discussed the rotation of the earth. Finally, Pierre Dailly, who lived from 1350 to 1420, affirmed that the earth was round and suggested that without obstacles, a person could walk around the globe in a few years. Almost all the other major medieval thinkers, including Augustine, Aquinas, and Dante affirmed the Earth was a sphere. This leaves us with a couple of obvious problems. First, if medieval Europeans did not believe the world was flat, why was Columbus's plan for reaching the East by sailing West controversial? Second, if medieval Europeans did not believe the world was flat, where did the flat error come from? Let's consider the situation with Columbus first. In the late 1400s, when Columbus first began to propose his idea of reaching Asia by sailing to the west, the plan was indeed controversial. However, contrary to the flat earth error, Columbus skeptics had no problem with his view about the shape of the world. Their problem was with Columbus's estimates of the earth's size. In fact, Columbus made two errors, that caused him to underestimate the distance required to reach Asia in the east by traveling west. First, he believed that the earth was much smaller than it actually was. And second, he believed that Asia extended much further out into the ocean than it actually does. On the basis of these two errors, Columbus argued that the distance from the Canary Islands The Canary Islands are um, located off the northeast, or excuse me, the northwest uh, coast of Africa. He believed that the distance from the Canary Islands to Japan was the equivalent of 4,450 kilometers, when in reality the distance is 22,000 kilometers. This map shows where Columbus expected Asia to lie, compared to uh, where North America and South America actually lie. And what you can see, based on this diagram, it's a little bit confusing, but what you can see is that Columbus was expecting to hit Japan at about the point when he would actually hit Mexico. Skeptics of Columbus's plan in the late 1400s did not believe that he would fall off the edge of the earth. They believed, instead, that he would likely run out of food and water in the middle of the ocean, before making it to his final destination. Moreover, they were correct. If Columbus had not run into the New World in his efforts to sail to uh, to the east, he and his men would likely have run out of supplies in the middle of the ocean. As Leslie Cormack has noted, we can also see that Columbus's crew did not believe in the flatness of the world by looking at their actual complaints during his voyage. In contemporary records of the voyage, the crew make no mention of the danger of falling off the edge of the world. Rather, they were concerned, first, that the voyage was taking longer than Columbus had promised, and they were frightened, secondly, that the wind seemed to be blowing constantly due west leading to fears that they would ever be able to return against the prevailing wind. Thus, there is no hint from contemporary records of Columbus's voyage that his crew was concerned about the flatness of the world. This leads us to a second problem. If medieval Europeans believed in a round earth, and Columbus's ideas were distrusted because of concerns over the earth's size rather than its shape, where did the flat earth error come from. To understand the origins of the flat earth error, it's helpful to look first at several of the seeds from which it sprang. These seeds came from the medieval period, but they did not develop immediately into the flat earth error. They would await the favorable conditions of a later period. The first seed of the flat earth error is the fact that while the vast majority of major medieval thinkers affirmed the sphericity of the earth, there were at least two thinkers who questioned it. The first of these was Lactantius, who lived from 245 to 325 CE. Lactantius was an early Christian writer who was extremely critical of the writings of pagan Greek and Roman philosophers in general. Lactantius suggested that if the world were round, then there would have to be people on the other side of the globe, with with their feet above their heads, with crops and trees that grew upside down, and with rain and snow that fell upward. He found this idea to be patently ridiculous, and so he concluded that the earth must not be round. A second writer, who actually proposed the idea of a flat earth during the Middle Ages, was a Greek writer named Cosmas Indicopleustes, who lived in the 500s CE. Cosmas believed that the world was flat and rectangular, with a vaulted arch above the earth forming the sky. He based his interpretations on passages from the Bible that talk about the four corners or the ends of the earth and which speak of the sky being stretched out like a canopy. Cosmos also misunderstood the maps of other ancient geographers. Scholars such as Eratosthenes and Strabo had produced flat, rectangular maps of the known world, and Cosmos believed these to indicate that the world was actually flat. As Geoffrey Russell has pointed out, although Lactantius and Cosmos did support the idea of a flat Earth, few people paid attention to their ideas in the Middle Ages. Several of Lactantius' ideas were actually viewed as heretical during the period, and his writings about the shape of the earth were not widely heeded. Meanwhile, the few people that mentioned Cosmas and Dicoploistes were critical, and his works were not even translated into Latin, the common language of Western Europe during the Middle Ages, until 1706. He had almost no influence on the history of Western thought. Thus, Lactantius and Cosmos Indicoploestes were not representative of mainstream thought during the Middle Ages, but the fact that they existed would be critical for the later development of the flat-earth era. As Leslie Cormack has pointed out, a second seed for the flat-earth error was a misunderstanding of the medieval practice of map-making. Mapmakers commonly made world maps during the medieval period, but they are different from modern maps. Most medieval world maps depicted only the known and inhabited parts of the globe, that is, Europe, Africa, and Asia. This this map is pretty typical of of the orientation of medieval world maps. This is Europe pictured over here, this is Africa here, and this is Asia over here. Uh, Usually medieval world maps would be centered on the city of Jerusalem, which was viewed as the sacred center of the world uh, by medieval Christians. Uh, Frequently these maps are called TO maps because the shape of the Mediterranean Ocean kind of forms a T here at the center. And then the shape of the surrounding ocean uh, makes an O around the exterior of the map. Medieval mapmakers understood that they were creating a flat projection of just one part of the globe, and they made other depictions of a round earth, showing different climactic zones, for example. Nevertheless, if you look exclusively at TO maps and take them as a literal representation of what the world looked like, you might conclude that medieval mapmakers believed the earth was flat. A third seed for the flat Earth era came from the astronomer and writer Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus is noted for his proposition that the Earth and planets orbit around the Sun, a heliocentric model, in place of the geocentric model that dominated at his time, which pictured the Sun and planets orbiting around the Earth. On its face, this would seem to have nothing to do with the idea of a flat Earth. However, as Geoffrey Russell has pointed out, in the preface to his book proposing the heliocentric theory, Copernicus compared his geocentric critics to thinkers like Lactantius, who questioned the sphericity of the globe. Copernicus did not actually claim that medieval people who rejected the heliocentric theory believed that the world was flat, but his use of this analogy to crit- to critique his detractors created a basis for misunderstanding in the future. The seeds of the Flat Earth Era were present by the early 1500s, but they did not develop right away. Although writers of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the Scientific Revolution of the 17th century, and the Enlightenment of the 18th century could all be critical of the medieval period, none of them articulated the medieval flat-earth era. Instead, it was in the 19th and 20th centuries that the flat-earth era really developed. In the development of the flat-earth era during this later period, there were two individuals and one wider intellectual movement that were particularly important. I'd like to examine each of these in turn. The individual most responsible for the introduction of the flat earth error to a wide audience in America is the popular writer Washington Irving, who in 1828 wrote a work entitled The Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. Washington Irving did research for his book, but he did not hesitate to make up parts of the narrative when it suited his purpose as a storyteller. As a storyteller, he also had the very definite purpose of building up the reputation of Columbus, and inventing the flat earth error helped him to do that. Rather than accurately portraying Columbus as a mistaken geographer, Irving invents the image of Columbus boldly proclaiming the truth of the round earth. In one of the most important moments in Irving's narrative, Columbus confronts his critics at a conference in Salamanca, Spain. According to Washington Irving's account, Columbus boldly proclaims his belief in a round earth, while his critics largely insist on a flat view of the earth, even quoting at him the criticisms of Lactantius. There was a council that took place at Salamanca in 1491. The only problem is that Irving's account of it is almost completely made up. The scholar Samuel Eliot Morrison describes Irving's account as, quote, pure moonshine. Washington Irving ended up sacrificing the truth in his effort to tell a dramatic tale and build the reputation of Columbus. The second individual who originated the Flat Earth error was the French scholar, Antoine Jean Latron. While Washington Irving spread the Flat Earth error to a popular audience, Latrone helped to establish it in the scientific community. In his writings, Latrone was motivated less by a desire to exalt Columbus than with a goal, the goal of denigrating the Middle Ages. Latrone argued that a few medieval thinkers did know that the world was round, but that the majority believed in a flat earth, motivated by, quote, persecution, prison, and the stake, unquote. His On the Cosmological Opinions of the Church Fathers became a basis for later scholarly treatments of the subject. Thus, through the works of Washington Irving and Antoine Jean Latron, the Flat Earth error was in circulation by the 1830s. Nevertheless, it was not until the period between 1870 and 1920 that the Flat Earth Era became intellectual and intellectually dominant. This was tied to a wider intellectual development during the period. Between 1870 and 1920, there was an increasing tension in European and American society over the alleged conflict between the theory of evolution and the Christian teaching of creation. Writers critical of religious opposition to evolution began to argue that there was a longer history of conflict between religion and science in the West this is where the myth of medieval belief in a flat earth came into play and proved particularly useful. If medieval thinkers in general, and the medieval church in particular, had opposed the truth of a spherical earth, that would prove that modern opposition to evolution was just the latest episode in the church's effort to oppose scientific truth. To quote Geoffrey Burton Russell, supporters of evolution who invoked the flat-earth myth were saying essentially, quote, These people who deny evolution today are exactly the same sort of people as those idiots who for at least a thousand years denied that the earth was round. How stupid can you get? Unquote. This theory was put forward most forcefully by a writer named William Draper in his 1873 book entitled, the history of the conflict between religion and science. And the wider theme of the ongoing conflict between science and religion, together with the flat-earth error, was soon picked up by many other writers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Given the lack of evidence for flat-earth belief in the medieval period, you might wonder how these authors went about making their argument. Three techniques were particularly prominent. First, these writers dramatically overemphasized the importance of the writings of the two intellectual figures during the medieval period who did critique the spherical earth, Lactantius and Cosmos Indicopleustes. Rather than regarding these figures as marginal and of relatively little influence, they were now represented as typical of the medieval viewpoint, while the truly influential thinkers of the medieval period were viewed as exceptions to the general rule and were largely ignored. Second, as Leslie B. Cormack has pointed out, proponents of the flat earth error gained support from their misreading of medieval maps. Rather than recognizing, as medieval mapmakers did, that medieval maps were flat projections of only part of the globe, these writers took medieval maps to be naive depictions of a flat earth. Finally, proponents of the flat earth error supported their viewpoint by quoting from other scholars who shared their opinions, rather than going back to medieval sources. This allowed them to avoid the uncomfortable fact that there was very little in the way of medieval source material uh, supporting their position. As Geoffrey Burton Russell has noted, ever since the Flat Earth era became established between 1870 and 1920, scientists and historians have been working to overturn it. George Sarton recognized the flat-earth error in his work on the history of science from 1927, and Charles Jones directly attacked the flat-earth error in a work from 1934. In 1943, the Historical Association of Britain published a pamphlet correcting the error. Arguably, the flat-earth error is in the process of gradual and deserved extinction. Voices debunking the myth have come to outnumber those endorsing it, and considerable inroads have been made in removing it from educational materials. Nevertheless, the persistence of the flat-earth error is important for several reasons. First, as suggested by Jeffrey Russell, historians and scientists often repeat errors of fact or interpretation without checking methodology and sources. The flat-earth error proved especially persistent because scholars were hesitant to go back and check the original sources that interpretations and theories were based upon. Second, as pointed out by Shiloh Carroll, the flat earth error served the tendency of the present to look down on the past. As she put it, modern people need somewhere to put ignorance, backwardness, and barbarism, and the Middle Ages is very often where that need ends up. People have been quick to affirm a medieval belief in a flat earth because they already have a negative view of the period. Thus, the myth of the flat earth reminds us of the need for humility in the face of the past. As many of you are aware, there are people today who believe in a flat earth, but this is a modern movement with its origins in the early 1800s, which has flourished in the face of modern scientific proof to the contrary. In contrast, medieval people, who never had the benefit of a satellite photo or accounts from astronauts, believed the scientific evidence of a round earth to which they had access. So much for the backwardness of the medieval period. Finally, the flat earth era has persisted because it serves to perpetuate Christopher Columbus as a historical hero. Arguably, there is an attraction in telling the story of a bold sailor determined to prove a scientific truth to the world, in the face of the established authorities of his day. It may seem anticlimactic, on the other hand, to assert that Christopher Columbus discovered the New World because he was wrong about geography. Ultimately, however, the measure of a historical narrative is not to be dramatic, but to be true.